I don't know if you watched the coronation. Obviously, many of you did, or that you were there. Give a shout again if you were there. Yes, well done. You saw all that pomp and ceremony and splendor of the occasion. Um, Natasha, my wife, who is not from here, was quite impressed. After commenting on the typical British weather, she said, I have to hand it to the British. They know how to do this stuff. She's American with you know a couple of hundred years of history, and that's it. And I had to say, <laughs> sorry, no offense meant. But I had planned to sit down and watch maybe 20 minutes and then get on with other things. But I did get sucked into it all. And a couple of hours later, I was still there watching as the procession went by, the soldiers, the horses, the band, and then everything happening in the service, some of those great hymns and music, the reading of scripture, the prayers, and all those various objects that Jenny recreated for us here. Shame none of them were worth anything because it would have solved all our financial struggles, wouldn't it? But a lot of symbolism in them. Now, whether or not you're really a royalist this morning doesn't particularly matter. We're thinking about a different king, King Jesus, a king not just of one nation or group of nations, to be politically correct, but of the whole earth for all eternity. And the passage we've just had read to us will help us as we reflect on the difference Jesus makes in our lives. Why should we crown him king? And to help us think about that this morning, I've got four key words for us, crowds, Christ, cross, and cost. If nothing else, it'll help you work out how long there is to go in the message as we get through them. If we were playing 1% on ITV, has anyone seen that show? This is the 90% question. What does all these words have in common? Okay, good, yes. Yeah. Starts with the letter C. Youngsters, if you can find another thing in common with those words, I'll steal one of Jenny's chocolates and give you a prize. So that gives you something to do. Let's get into this passage then. Let's think about the crowds. Did you see them yesterday queuing from the early hours? Thousands along the procession route from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey and waiting there patiently in the rain for the king to come back again in that golden carriage despite the horrible weather. And at the service itself there were 2,000 people invited into Westminster Abbey. Many millions more watching on TV here in the UK and I'm sure around the world. Such an occasion I did find myself moved at times. It was quite impressive, quite moving. And in our passage this morning, there were also crowds, crowds following Jesus. But why would they follow Jesus? As far as they knew, he was just a poor carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee, not even from Jerusalem, the capital. Certainly no golden carriage or jewels or palace. Well, as we've been seeing already, if you follow the story of Jesus in the Gospels, the books written about him in the Bible, you will see that the crowds come, I think, because of two main reasons, what he does and what he says. They saw him do miracles, miracles of healing, bringing wholeness to people's lives. More than that, they saw how he treated people with compassion, with love, touching the untouchable, welcoming the outcast, healing the heartbroken, feeding the hungry loving the unlovable. There was something so different about Jesus, about the way he lived his life, about the way he treated others. But they also gathered around him wherever he went because of what he taught. He challenged the religious stereotypes and the harsh legalism of the day. He taught people to love God, heart, soul, and mind, and also to love their neighbors themselves. And he even had the audacity to suggest that hated outsiders were actually their neighbors. In fact, they're even to pray for their enemies, to bless them, not to repay evil with evil, but to help 
all, regardless of who they were. What a different world today would be if we followed those commands. And Jesus calls the poor and the peacemaker blessed, not the rich and the powerful. So yeah, the crowds came because they wanted to be healed by him. They came because they wanted to hear from him. But I think above all, they wanted to know who he was. And in the passage we read, Jesus asked this question of the disciples. Who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds had various ideas. The disciples would have been among them and knew what they were thinking. Some said perhaps John the Baptist. He was a contemporary of Jesus, a prophet-like figure that had called the people of Israel to get ready for someone to come after him who would restore Israel. And he was clearly pointing at Jesus. But John the Baptist had been killed by King Herod. And so some of the crowd thought, well, maybe, just maybe he's come back to life and now he's got all this power and wisdom and authority. Others said, well, maybe Elijah, an important figure in Israel's history, many, many centuries ago, but especially important because there was a prophecy about Elijah that he would return to prepare the way for Israel's savior who would return Israel to greatness, make Israel great again. Miga, not Maga. That sort of ideology has been around a long time. But John the Baptist actually played the role of Elijah. That was what was meant by that prophecy. So right idea, wrong person. Others were saying, well, maybe he's just one of those prophets from long ago. Those who had spoken out against wrongdoing and abuse of power that called the people back to follow God away from idolatry, to love God, to serve him. Something Jesus certainly did. And even on one occasion, they actually thought Jesus was the coming king who would save Israel. Palm Sunday, which we celebrate before Easter. They lined up like the crowds yesterday, along the main entrance to Jerusalem, shouting and praising Jesus, saying, here's the son of David, Israel's most famous king. So the crowds, they're following Jesus. They know that Jesus is someone special, someone sent from God, but they're not quite sure exactly who he is. But the next question Jesus asks his disciples is what Jesus really wants to know. Who do you say that I am? That is the key question for his disciples. And that's the crucial question for us, because the answer to that is life-changing. Who is Jesus? Is he simply a prophet or a great teacher with an amazing message? Was he just a good man who was killed to keep the status quo? All those ideas begin to describe Jesus, but they don't go far enough. They simply don't take into account all the many extraordinary things he did and the extraordinary claims he made. You can't say the things he said and be good unless they're true. As C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia stories puts it, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. So we need to answer this question, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to you this morning? And Peter in this story is always speaking before he thinks, blurts out our next key word, Christ. He makes that great declaration, you are the Christ of God, or as it was read to us, you are the Messiah, same word. I expect many people today think Christ is just Jesus' surname, or that Jesus Christ, that's how you hear them together. 
And sadly, many people think it's just a swear word. But Christ or Messiah was not a name. It was a title, a Greek word meaning anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew word, which we've heard read to us. And that, by the way, is why I've got a picture of olive oil up there, because you anoint people in that culture with olive oil, as we should all do, having lived in Spain. What does that tell us to say that Jesus is the Christ? Well, first and foremost, it tells us that Jesus is a king. Kings were anointed with oil as part of their coronation in the Bible, and we saw that yesterday, didn't we? King Charles was also anointed with oil. They mentioned as that was happening, King Solomon being anointed by Zadok the priest as they played that song by Handel of the same name. But what's so special about it? Well, it signifies that the king was set apart by God. He's the Christ of God to serve him in that capacity. And actually, I quite like the picture we saw yesterday when King Charles was anointed. I don't know if you saw it, but they took off all the ceremonial robes he was wearing. He had a very simple garment underneath, and then they hid him away with those boards, didn't they, while they did the actual anointing. But it's actually an illustration of the profound depths Jesus went to on our behalf. He laid aside his majesty. He left the glory of heaven to come and serve us, as it says in another part of the Bible, who being in very nature God, talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. As Jesus told his disciples another time, I've come as the king not to be served, but to serve something that Charles stated and prayed he might do, and we certainly hope and pray he does. So Jesus is the anointed one of God, and he's come for a specific purpose. And they also read another scripture yesterday that points to that purpose, a prophecy of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is God's anointed who brings good news. The good news that God's kingdom is coming, a kingdom in which prisoners are set free, the blind see, the oppressed are released, and people know God's favor. It's a kingdom that can break into our own society as we learn to live for God and follow Jesus. And wherever and whenever we do that, we see God's justice and mercy, God's care and protection for the vulnerable and needy, something we certainly hope our new king will strive for as much as he is able. But it's what God calls us to as his people as we wait for the fullness of his kingdom. <coughs> so Peter replies to Jesus, you are the Christ of God, God's anointed king. Who is Jesus to you? I hope you think about that question in the coming days. But that brings us to our third word, cross. Because Jesus didn't come as we'd expect a king to come. Certainly not with all the pomp and ceremony of yesterday and no carriage or jewels. He was born in a manger, lived life as a carpenter in a backwater place in northern Israel, and then became a wandering teacher with no money. But he also didn't come as a king would normally come because he came to die for all mankind. After telling the disciples not to let anyone know his true identity, we read in this passage what Jesus tells them next, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, another Old Testament title that points to his divinity and his humanity. But Jesus knew that first he must suffer many things, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and most shockingly of all, must be killed. That little word must tells us this is part of God's plan. This is not an accident. This is not a helpless but good man killed by the authorities of the day to keep him quiet. He would experience rejection, injustice, a false trial, false witnesses. He would be crucified on a cross, an awful way to die. But why was that necessary? Why did Jesus have to suffer all that? It had to happen, as we've already thought about, so that he might save others. Jesus did not come only to serve us, as we've read, but we also see that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here is the truth, the truth we don't like to face sometimes. All of us are lost, cut off from God because of human sin. All we see wrong in the world has its roots in our rebellion against God as mankind, and we're collectively guilty as well as individuals individually. None of us can claim to be perfect, and I expect most of us would admit that. But going to heaven is not a question of being a good enough person, a nice enough person, or maybe not just doing all the really bad things, because any sin cuts us off from a holy God. So that's why Jesus had to die. He had to come and die for our sins and take our punishment. If it was just a matter of being good, it to come. But he lays down his life for us. And that picture of King Charles taking off his robes is only a beginning of what Jesus did. That same passage goes on to say that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God sent his son, the anointed one, the Christ, to die on the cross for us, dying to take our place, dying to pay the penalty for our sins dying to secure eternal life for us. And that brings us to our last word, the cost. We know there was a cost to even the sort of pared down version of the coronation. It's been a bit of a national debate, isn't it? Who should pay for it? King Charles with all his diamonds or the rest of us with no diamonds? Won't go into it. But there's another cost yesterday that some people were also willing to pay. Not everyone, but some. And that was the cost of pledging allegiance to King Charles. It's up on the screen. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. You may or may not have done that. King Charles is a figurehead, so maybe it's not too important anyway. But if you pledge allegiance to the king, that means you're willing to put his interests above yours. You're willing to live as his loyal subject. And in the same way, there is a cost to following Jesus. Yes, he died for our sins, but he demands something of us. He demands a pledge of allegiance to him as king. And he describes this in verses 23 and 24. He says, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. That is the cost 
of following Jesus. But notice, this is for anyone. So it's not an exclusive club only for the rich and famous, only for those select 2,000 people at Westminster Abbey, the heads of state, the politicians, new and old. This is for anyone. And responding to that invitation saves our lives. If we lose our life for him, he will save us. It's an open offer and a life-changing offer. But that cost is described in three different ways. We are to deny self, live for God, not for ourselves. And that does mean saying no to ourselves at times, when what we want is contrary to God's kingdom. <coughs> Take up your cross. Sometimes we use that kind of language when we say we're putting up with a grumpy neighbor or a boss or the mother-in-law. No, taking up your cross, the cross is an instrument of death. It's putting to death ourselves, saying, I'm going to live to please God, to lose our lives for his sake. And to follow me, Jesus says, walk in his footsteps, or in the words of one of the songs yesterday, walk in his ways. To follow Jesus as the one who came to serve and to give his life for others, to love our enemies, to pray for them, to live with Jesus as king. And that's an ongoing challenge for all of us if we follow Christ, to pledge allegiance to him over anyone or anything else. That is the cost of following Jesus. It is not easy, and it will not make everything great in your life. But it is worth it because Jesus, when he rose again, we read those words, on the third day he will be raised to life. He has demonstrated that he is indeed Christ the anointed one, that he did indeed live a perfect life in our place and die for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might receive life, life forevermore. And so Jesus is now not just the Christ whom God sent, but the resurrected king. And one day there will be a coronation, as we saw with Jenny. He will come in his glory, it says in this passage, and in the glory of the Father. We look forward to that. But as we look forward to it, we have the opportunity to follow him, to pledge allegiance to him, the one who's due all worship, service, and obedience from all of creation. And I'll close with a few last thoughts. The reason this is so important, because if there is a cost to following Jesus, there is a cost to not following Jesus. You can chase after all kinds of things, relationships, money, power, fame, yet none of those will satisfy you. Jesus says, verse 25, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world, all the riches you could imagine, all the wealth, all the fame, all of that stuff, and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The paradox of life and of God's kingdom is that the more we chase after those things, the more we lose. And that the way to find ourselves is not through them, but through losing our lives for Jesus' sake, to place him first, to pledge allegiance to him. And when Jesus does return for his coronation, he will invite all those who followed him. As it says in this passage, all those who've not been ashamed of him and his words, Words we have in the Bible as the foundation for our lives. Words that King Charles III pledged to base his life on. The lively words that we heard about yesterday. 
Let me close with this. The passage we read earlier about Jesus becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross, goes on to say this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the, the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then, as we heard yesterday, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. He will be crowned king over all. I wonder if you'd been one of the 2,000 invited to Westminster, whether you would have gone or not. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, maybe twice, given the age of the current king. But here we have an opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins and to become part of God's family, God's kingdom, if we acknowledge now that Christ is Lord and King, that Christ is our Lord, our King, if we crown him King of our lives. So I hope as you think about King Charles's coronation, that you move from being one of the crowd simply watching on to someone who knows Jesus as the Christ, God's anointed King, and you accept what he did for you on the cross dying to pay the penalty for your sin, and that you follow him no matter what the cross cost is. Let me just pray briefly.